at the Dunkin' Donuts right over here on Howard Street <laughs> with six dozen, or six, six dozen, six dozen. That's like, that's like six times 12, and that's like a lot, all right? That's like 70 times seven, like a number that I can't even count. <laughs> and uh, so at this point, what does Charlie do? Well, Charlie at this point sits down with Montreal and says, brother, uh, you want to run this race. You don't want to be eating these donuts. Uh, you want to run. Now, in the world of athletics, we understand that that conversation is actually an act of love for Montrell. Thank you. Why don't we understand that, though, when it comes to spiritual things? That's really the question I want to ask this morning. Sometimes I think I've seen, you've probably seen people more uh, passionate about trivial things of life as opposed to spiritual things of life. Like more passionately persuade someone to, uh, to bow in reverence and submission to their sports team. More so than bow in reverence and submission to Jesus Christ. More concerned and more passionate about like the trivial matters of life, where we think it's actually good and okay for Charlie to get in Montreal's face when he's eating donuts and what should be preparing for a marathon. It's we 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 understand why that's a good thing. Yet when we apply that to spiritual matters, we're so often to say, eh, I don't know about that. Sounds cultish. <laughs> Listen, do you love each other enough to pursue the wandering? Let me ask it another way. Do you recognize that sin is actually destructive? Do you recognize that Satan is truly an enemy that is trying to destroy the people sitting right next to you? Take a look at each other. Satan is trying to destroy that individual. All around the room, Satan has strategies beyond your comprehension for how to destroy you and everybody else in this room. And the question is, is do we understand that? Do we, do, we, do we believe that? Do we believe that to the degree that we will pursue the wandering? I want to talk to you today on this theme, pursue the wanderer. Why do we not pursue the wanderer? Well, let me give you two uh, proposed reasons as to why we might not pursue the wanderer. I think we often fall into one of two extremes. On one hand, we ignore. On the other hand, we despise. When someone falls into sin, we either are prone to ignore them or despise them. So, for instance, in Jesus' day, their temptation would have been more toward despising the sinner. So as the disciples here are are growing and they're, they're adding people to their numbers, Jesus knows that their temptation is when somebody falls into sin because of the Jewish culture that they are coming from, When somebody falls into sin, they are going to despise them, reject them, cast them out, separate themselves from them, uh, and and, and get as far away from the sinner as they can possibly get, get because they don't want to become unclean. Now, Jesus has already shown us you're not allowed to despise the sinner. He already reframed that for us. He said the sinner, the wandering one, is more like a lost sheep. And you'll leave all 99 to go in pursuit of that sheep. And he says, and even if you don't, the Father is going to. I will not lose any of my sheep. 
He wants us to not despise the wandering soul, but to love the wandering soul. But our temptation is so often, instead of having our hearts broken for the wandering, our temptation is to hate the wandering. And we show that through shunning. We show that through gossiping about the individual. We show that through giving a cold shoulder when someone is wandering from Christ. That's one extreme. The other is to ignore. Why would we ignore the wanderer? Well, it's because I don't want to put myself out there like that. Because if I have this conversation with this person, even if I know I should and it's right, if I have this conversation with this person, they're going to think I'm that kind of Christian. And they're going to associate me with all of these others who abuse authority and, and, and have abused you know, this, this kind of stuff in past churches. And so we don't want to be associated with that kind of like authoritarian, you know, maybe legalistic sort of Christianity. And so we just simply then ignore the wandering soul. Or maybe we ignore the wandering soul, not for those reasons, but just simply because, and let's be honest, we don't actually think unrepentant sin is that big of a deal. At the end of the day, I think if we thought unrepentant sin was truly a, a big deal, I think we would see us just pursuing each other regularly because we don't want to see the, their, that life destroyed. But I think so often we, we have this cheap grace mentality. Oh, God saved me. God saved them. We're all good to go. Unrepentant sin then equals not a big deal. Do you ignore the wandering soul? For any of these reasons. Or maybe you're on that flip side. Do you despise the wandering soul? Now, if we can all agree that we should not either ignore or despise the wandering soul, the next question becomes, how then do we pursue the wandering soul? Well, I've got good news for you. So everybody smile right now. I've got good news for you. Jesus has told us how. He doesn't just simply say, Wandering sheep, 99, one over there, go pursue them, and then now just figure that out and do it however you want to do it. No, Jesus actually regulates how we pursue each other. He tells us, so what this passage is, is actually a little explanation of the previous passage on the wandering sheep. He's like, so let me just tell you how to do this, because I've got a really great idea, and this is the way to do it. Uh, and we can trust Jesus' words. So, we're go- what we're going to do is we're going to look at how uh, Jesus calls us to wandering, uh, to pursue the wandering soul. We're going to do this under three headings. First, the church's process of pursuing the wandering soul. And we're going to spend most of our time underneath that heading. We're going to talk about Jesus' pattern and, and how he shows, shows us how to do it. Secondly, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about our church's practice of pursuing the wandering soul, how we apply some of these things practically. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the purpose of pursuing a wandering soul. So let's get into it. First heading, the church's process. Now, it's so important, this is hugely important to realize that our, pro- our pattern is shaped by Jesus' pattern. We don't do this any way we see fit. And let me just say something really quick before we get into it. If you don't get the, if a church or individuals ignore Jesus' pattern on how to pursue the wanderer, that is actually how we get ourselves into a lot of trouble. 
as, as the church of Jesus Christ. That is how we start to see abuse, authoritarianism. I'll give you an example, true story. I've seen this with my own eyes. 14-year-old girl gets pregnant in a local church. Now, we all know how people get pregnant. And so the church then kind of deduces from that she's having sex. And so they then require this young girl with a little belly to come on the stage and to read to the church a letter of apology. Well, as you can imagine, that girl drifted, ran out of shame. See, a lot of times when we think of church discipline, you have that kind of image in your head. Shaming, embarrassment. Why is, you're going to see as we go through this, why that scenario is so wrong. Can I just tell you a couple things really quick, and then you can test me as we go through this? It's wrong because you discipline for unrepentant sin. This girl was repentant. She was repentant. And secondly, friends, you don't discipline for pregnancy. <laughs> you don't discipline because somebody's got a baby. I mean, it's just like wrong in so many ways. You discipline for unrepentance. Secondly, it's wrong because uh, the, the pattern that Jesus sets before us was completely abandoned and ignored, and she was immediately brought before the entire assembly. Guys, I want to submit that if you have this negative view of church discipline in your head, it's because you're thinking it according to our own patterns that we devise, not according to Jesus' pattern. And so if, if you will, can we get into it a little bit? Jesus' pattern of how we pursue the wandering soul so that we can avoid as a church some of these abuses 15-year-old girl, or you think of the Salem witch trials, right? Another just outright abuse of this concept. Let's get into it. So in Jesus' pattern, we see three different approaches. We see an individual approach, we see a small group approach, and we see a church, a whole church approach. And those approaches are not any random order, meaning we don't just say, we don't just start with the church and then eventually get to the individual, but this is actually a progressive pattern in the text. You do this first, you do this second, and you do this third. So what do we do first? Everybody answer. What do we know? He goes first to the individual approach. We see this in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, he says, go and tell him it's his fault. Now, you see that word against you. If your brother sins against you, in some of the early texts, uh, the, the, the two words against you are not actually there. So some texts just simply read, if somebody sins, uh, go and tell him it's his fault. Meaning this isn't just, just simply uh, an, a personal offense. They sinned against you. But then we can also, even if against you should be there, and I think it probably should, we can also deduce from 1 Corinthians 5, what we know there is that sin, any sin, actually affects the whole lump. Meaning in the scriptures, there is no, th no such thing as personal sin. Your personal sin that you committed in a closet affects the entire body. All right? So, so we can just simply say, if anybody sins against the church, somebody is in ongoing sin, we also know that it's unrepentant sin. 
We know that because we're going to see that this person doesn't have a clue that it's sinful. This person is just kind of going on with it, and they actually have to have it called out in their life. So this isn't just simply someone who comes and confesses a sin to you. No, confession is actually what we should do. This is unrepentant sin. This is when the person's blind to their own sin. They don't see it. They don't realize that they're walking down the, the, the wide path heading to the city of destruction. When somebody sins against you, he says, go to your small group and gossip about them and tell them all the dirty details and, and, uh, and pretend like it's a prayer request. Hey, guys, I just got something heavy on my heart. I got a prayer request. It's an unspoken, but I'll, I'll speak it for you. Montreal the other day. I saw him. Should I just stop right there? <laughs> I was about to <laughs> commit. No, we we see somebody uh, in sin, unrepentant, ongoing, grievous sin, meaning it's clear, and we do what? We, we go to them individually. This is the individual approach. This is step number one. The individual approach. We, we go to this person, and it says that you tell him it's his fault. And that word fault right there means uh, mistake, meaning you point out the fact that he's making a mistake. That's, that's kind of the, as, as clear as day. Like you just simply show, like, hey, uh, there's this issue um, that's going on in your life. You're making a mistake. Uh, you have this fault. You're, you're stumbling. You're falling here. And you just simply uh, point it out. How do you do this? Well, according to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, those who are spiritual among you restore one another with what? Does anybody know the verse? Brian just read it this morning. Gentleness, exactly. We restore with gentleness. And so this does not mean that we go in a mean-spirited kind of way and say, man, you are just such a fool. I want to just point this out. No, there's like this gentle yet persistent uh, uh, um, uh, recognition of sin that is in somebody's life. Turn quickly. I want you to keep your finger in Matthew 18, and I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 5, because in 1 Corinthians 5, we actually see a New Testament application of Jesus' teaching here. So in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans, which is, by the way, why we believe that this is for grievous, clear, unrepentant sin. Like, even the the surrounding world uh, believes that you are, uh, uh, that this is ridiculous. For a man, he says, has his father's wife. So in this situation, there's a guy who is having sex with his stepmother. Um, and, and then he says, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, what he points out is, is that they are arrogant in their acceptance of this person. How can you, how can you bear with this individual? How can you just kind of go on, uh, he, he says, with, with just simply affirming this individual? Um, now, let me ask you this question. We've done this in basics class, so if you've been to our basics class, you know the answer. Who does Paul write this letter to? The church, the members, right? Not a council, not the elders, not the deacons. He writes it to the members, which means that that every member, every individual has a responsibility for one another. 
which means that if there is some kind of ongoing grievous sin in, in our midst, that it's your responsibility to love and to care for that person. I also use this analogy in basics class. I'm a, I'm a member at the YMCA, right? But if I don't show up at the YMCA for a couple weeks, which some of you are guilty of, right? Here, here. Nobody calls me and says, hey, I'm, so, you know, I'm concerned. I don't, don't see you uh, throwing weight around like you usually do. The church is not like the YMCA. We have a personal responsibility for each other. And so here Jesus says that you are to individually go to this person and gently show them that it's that they have this sin. This is why membership matters. This is why we use this tool of a church covenant. It just helps to frame kind of our expectations and to know what it means then to be responsible for one another. Now, at this point, I want you to understand that there are no elders involved. There is no small group involved. You haven't gone to your gossipy little prayer group and shared this prayer gossip. No, you have only spoke with one individual, and that is the individual that is in unrepentant sin. I love David Platt and his... um, In his commentary on Matthew, he says this. I want to read this to you. He says, if we get this first step right, we might find that about 95% of the the world of church discipline and restoration has been taken care of before anyone else becomes involved. Platt's saying, look, if we get this right, you will not know of the vast majority of discipline cases. How many discipline cases are in the Garden Church? I have no clue. Probably 120, maybe 500. We have no clue because 99% of them are taken care of at this level. This is the ongoing work of the local church. Listen, I have been disciplined in this way. I have had some of you come to me and say, Joel, I, I see some sin in your life, and I don't think you're aware of it, and you point it out, and I'm like, thank you, brother. Thank you, sister. Like, that's first, that's step one. Like, this is what we do for each other. This is just an ongoing uh, um, care and, and love for each other. Now, secondly, so what Jesus understands is that while probably the vast majority of these cases you're going to find repentance and thankfulness, and Jesus even says himself, you'll win that brother over, you're going to be best buddies. Jesus understands that there are going to be some times when the person continues. They don't listen, and they continue in their unrepentant sin. And so if that happens, Jesus says, okay, now you go to this next approach. So let's just go on in this progression here. The second approach is this small group approach in verse 16. Here in verse 16, Jesus actually quotes a judicial uh, law from the Old Testament. He says, uh, if they do not listen, meaning they continue in their ways, take one or two others along with you. Here's the judicial quote. He says that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, this is a beautiful thing for us. This is very beneficial. Let me tell you how this benefits us. Number one, this small group approach protects 
the church from overly zealous crackerjacks. People that just see some sin in everybody and they're constantly going and and they're, they're just dreaming stuff up and they're bringing stuff before the elders and they're trying to bring stuff before the church at members meetings and they're just like, you're too zealous, brother. Like you're just dreaming this stuff up. No, there actually has to be two or three other witnesses. Meaning there has to be a, at least a couple other people who have seen this pattern as well. This protects us. It also, the second benefit is it makes the call to repentance so much stronger. You're coming now with a couple others, and, and now with a united voice, these two or three people say together, we're concerned, sister. We're concerned, brother. Like We see these patterns in your life, and we want you to turn back to Jesus, and it comes with that, that much more strength. Now, if the person continues to remain in their unrepentant sin, and they do not listen at this approach, there's a third approach that Jesus says, and that is the whole church approach, which we see in verse 17. Let's look at it. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to the two or three, uh, then, then uh, tell it, he says, to the church. And does anybody know what the word church is right there in the Greek? Scholars? Ekklesia. You got it. Ekklesia, which means what? It means gathering. The group, which means tell it to the gathering, tell it to the church, not the council, not the elders, not the deacons, not some kind of like creative thing that you've come up with to handle these cases. But actually, you've, there's a sense in which we have to tell it to the church, which probably like flies in the face of a lot of American Christianity to do this in the right way. Tell it, he says, to the church. And, and notice he says, tell it, which means that the whole church doesn't necessarily even have to have been a witness of these patterns. You know, in some very large churches, the whole church might not even know the individual personally. Remember, the early church consisted of like a couple thousand people. So you are to tell it to the church. This is probably the most countercultural aspect of this entire passage. to inform the church that someone is in ongoing, unrepentant sin. Now, we, we, we do get this at other levels of society. For instance, if you were in the military, say, we would get this at a war level. So you're going into battle, and you know that your comrade next to you uh, is not wearing their armor, and they have a mortal wound, and they're bleeding out, and they're just covering it up. And you're going out to, into battle together, and you've already talked to them. A couple others have, and they, they still are just going out into battle, and, and they're defying all of the strategies. And, and you know that if you go into battle arm in arm, side by side with this person, you are going to see this person die. And most likely, their death will affect the entire platoon. And so in other aspects of life, we understand the danger of letting some, something go on that is so destructive. And so we allow then this, this sense in which we tell someone so that we might save the individual, so that we might see restoration in the individual. And so he says here clearly, tell it. Third step, the, the whole church approach, tell it to the church. Now, 
if they refuse to listen to the church, he says in verse 18, or verse 17, he says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Which what he's saying here is, if he refuses to listen to the church, change your relationship with this individual. So there's got to be this time now in which the church speaks, and if the church is not heard, and there's not restoration, then change your relationship with this individual. He says, let them be to you a tax collector or a Gentile. What does he mean by that? Well, first, question, how did Jesus treat tax collectors and Gentiles? Answer, love, kindness, what else? What's that? He, he pursued them. None of these answers are, he shunned them, he hated them, he despised them, he ignored. No, he actually pursues, them. he eats with them, he loves them. So this does not mean that we then shun someone or we're, we're kind of outcasting them as, a, as someone who's just wicked and going. No, we are actually are pursuing them with love. We're caring for them. We're reaching out to them. However, listen, our fundamental relationship has changed. We no longer come into fellowship with this person as a brother or sister in Jesus Christ. We're no longer having these intimate conversations of confess, confessing sin with each other. We're, we're, we're no longer eating communion, uh, the Lord's Supper with this individual. There has been a shift that has taken place at the fundamental level, yet the shift is one that is still a per, in pursuit of the individual. Again, you, you might see, well, let me, let me hold off on that. I was going to go to 1 Corinthians 5. I want to hold off. Let me read, read to you this David Platt quote. He goes on in his commentary, and he says this. He says, look, God loves us so much that if we are caught in sin, he will send an army of believers to us as a demonstration of his love and mercy. At the end of the day, while this is extremely countercultural, I want you to see that this is indeed an act of love. It's an act of love. Don't allow the world to define love. Allow God's word to define love. This indeed, this kind of whole church pursuit is love. Now it's founded on two things. It's founded first on Jesus' power. So we see this in the next verse. Jesus' power. In verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this is directly uh, a direct quote of another teaching of Jesus in chapter 16, verse 18. When Jesus is handing the keys of the kingdom over to the church. Let me just pause for a second. We all understand the concept of keys, right? Like if I gave you my keys, all right, here's my keys. Here's the key to my Honda, all right? And if I were to say, who wants it? Scotty, here's the key to the Honda. All right, I know you, I see you walking all over the place, and, uh, and I just feel bad for you. I'm giving you the key to the Honda, all right? 2003, got a little rust on the front banged up a little bit, uh, but it's a beaut, all right? Brandon Pastrowski took good care of it. Here you go. We all understand what that, tra- what that means, right? Uh, there's a transfer of authority. That j- he now has authority 
over my, it's still my Honda, which means I could, could take it back, but he currently has authority over the Honda. So Jesus has transferred something to the church. He says, I give you the keys. The keys of the kingdom. What are they? What is that? What are we holding now? Well, we're seeing it now played out. He says, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Now, first of all, what we see is that the keys of the kingdom have direct operation as it comes to what it means to pursue each other. So whatever the keys of the kingdom are, whatever this authority has, it has to do with this passage right here. So let's look at it. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There's this binding and loosing which takes place, which means a binding which would be you are, you are part of us. You are one of us. You are a representative of Jesus Christ. A loosing, which means you are, you are loosed. Us. There's this authority that the church has to say who it is that represents Jesus in this world. And it actually has real authority. So he says, uh, if, if, you, if you bind it on earth, it'll be bound in heaven. Now this is kind of confusing at first. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we actually have the power to declare someone an, individu- uh, an individual uh, uh, saved or going to hell? There's some extreme forms of this, which some churches believe that that excommunication means we are removing your salvation from you, and you're now going to hell. Is that what it means? Well, of course not. We can just read the rest of the Bible and see that that's clearly not what what it's about. But this whole uh, way it's phrased, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, it's actually written in such a way uh, in, in the Greek which shows us that it's more of a reflection of heaven. So whatever you do here on earth, it actually reflects what's going on in heaven. Uh, Whatever you bind on earth reflects what's going on in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth reflects what's going on in heaven. What Jesus is saying is, is if if, if you live and operate and pursue each other according to my words, according to my pattern, uh, founded on my word, right? Meaning if you're doing it the right way, um, your decisions as a church actually reflect the reality of heaven. I mean, it's kind of a clear example. If someone is in ongoing, destructive, unrepentant sin, and a church says you are outside of the grace of Jesus Christ in your unrepentant sin, well, Jesus is saying that that's actually a reflection of heaven. Like we are helping people see not just the church, we're helping people see heaven. I mean, how unloving is it, friends, to have someone in your midst who is on their way to hell and you just make them comfortable in this, in, in this world? And you don't expose them to the, the reality that they might be on their way to hell. We're helping people see heaven here. And Jesus has given us the keys to do so. And then he goes on in verse 19. We see his his presence is with us. He says, again, I say to you, if two or, uh, uh, agree on anything they ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Now, verse 20 is probably the most abused verse in all of Scripture. Generally, we, we use that verse when we have a, uh, a prayer gathering and only two or three people show up. Right? And we're kind of a little embarrassed by it. But what do we say? Well, 
where two or three are gathered, let's pray. <laughs> as if you don't have prayer power when you're praying as an individual. No, I think George Mueller's life would beg to differ. Now, this isn't about just simply having power in our prayers. This actually still in, is in the context of the church and of, of recognizing who belongs to the church and who doesn't. This change of status from one that is brother and sister to one that is Gentile and tax collector. And he's saying when two or three, meaning your church could be as small as two or three people. A lot of people will ask me, like, well, what if, what if I just meet, meet with, with two or three friends? Is that the church? I'm like, well, yeah, sure, it can be, as long as all the marks of a church are present. Church could be from two to 2,000 or more. But where there's two or three, meaning, meaning more than, you have to have more than one to be a church. Right? So where you have more than one, then you come together, and in, when you come together in Christ's name, which means that it's not just simply every time any Christians get together, right? This isn't simply saying, when you get together for the football game later on today, uh, you can go ahead and have this kind of power. No, it's not talking about any gathering of Christians. But when Christians particularly gather to represent Jesus. The point of the gathering is to represent his name. When we gather in his name, he says, there I am present. There is a real, unique presence that Christ has when the church pursues the wandering in this way. And Jesus knows that it's going to be hard for us. And so he gives us this assurance that I will be with you. I'm there. So what is our church's practice? Let me just briefly say a few words of practical application. How do we as a church practice these things? Well, first of all, we just we try to follow Jesus' pattern. So when someone is in unrepentant sin, I would say 99% of our uh, uh, church discipline cases are handled at that first level. This is just the daily, weekly interaction with each other. Right? This is, this is just me coming up to you. This is you coming up to me and saying, hey, I noticed something in you that, that, that seems to worry me. Um, and we thank one another for pointing that out. We, we reckon, and he says, you've won a brother. Now, if someone continues on in unrepentant sin, then we, again, follow Jesus' teaching, two or three. If they continue on in unrepentant sin, at some point we will bring them before uh, the congregation, as Jesus says. Now, we understand that to be the members of the church, so we don't do it in a public gathering where you know, of course, we have visitors here today, and we're not going to do it in the midst of people that aren't committed to this individual. We're only going to do it in the midst of those who are committed to this individual spiritually as a family. And so we would do this in the context of a members meeting, and we, we, would, we would share all that needs to be shared about the situation. We don't get into the gory details, but we simply say, like, there's, there's this dangerous uh, 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 movement in this individual's life, and we are desperately concerned about them. And we ask the church to pursue them. And a couple months go by. And the church will reach out, make phone calls, and try to pursue as a whole. And if that individual continues to, uh, re to remain in their unrepentance, and at some point uh, we would simply remove them from membership. Which, by the way, you can only, you can only discipline members because you have to have the, something to put them out of, right? 
and so then in that sense, we can't put somebody out of the gathering. This is a public gathering. So what do you put them out of? Well, you put them out of that intimate uh, recognition that you represent Jesus Christ with us. You're a member of this body. Now, that's our church's practice, the way that we are currently working toward understanding and applying these texts. And I will say that God has shown us great favor and mercy as we have pursued people. And we have seen so many, some of you in this room have been pursued in that way and you've, and you've come uh, to repentance. And I thank God for that, for the grace that he has shown you through the church, doing what the church is called to do. Well, lastly, what is the purpose here, the overarching purpose? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5. And I want you to see here in 1 Corinthians 5 the ultimate purpose of all of this, the, this kind of pursuit. Now, here in 1 Corinthians 5, getting back to this real-life application that we see in the early church, there's this man who's having relations with his, with his stepmother, And Paul says uh, in verse 4, he says, when you are assembled, look at it right there. He says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus just said. When you are gathered in my name. When you come together, not just for lunch, you come together not just for the football game, but when you come together to represent Jesus Christ in his name, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, I want you to see the purpose there. It sounds harsh at first. You're to deliver him to Satan. We're like, whoa, harsh language, Paul. Well, not when you realize what's actually going on. This man is already acting as if Satan is his father. And so Paul is essentially saying, look, give him over to Satan. If he wants Satan to be his father, let him experience what that life is like. Just turn him over. Deliver him over to Satan. But then he shows us the purpose. He says, so that his soul may be saved on that final day. The goal is not shame. The goal is not embarrassment. I mean, of course, purity of the church, that's important. The fact that sin affects the whole body and and that, that sin can spread, yes, that's very important. And those are all purposes. But the purpose is because we love you. The purpose is because we want you to be saved. The purpose is because there's no salvation out there. No, there's only salvation under the name of Jesus Christ by which a man be saved. This is why we, rest, we, we risk relationships. This is why we extend ourselves in this way. This is why we put ourselves out there and, and we pursue each other, risking the fact that you might point at me and call me judgmental. You might point at me and call me legalistic. You might, we might point at each other and say, we're risking something here when we love in this way. But friends, we're willing to because sin really is destructive and grace really is wonderful. This is fueled not by shame or guilt. It's fueled by grace. Look, the religious people, the religious say, oh, I'm better than that sinner, I'm better than them, and I don't want them to infect me, and so I'm going to remove and separate myself from them. That's not what we're doing. The irreligious say, oh, uh, sin isn't that big of a deal, just kind of let it go on, just look the other way. It's just just kind of like a a, a hang-up, not a big deal. Uh, and, and, And all the while, the religious and the irreligious are allowing people drift to hell. 
know, the gospel says sin really is a big deal. Sin really is destructive. Satan really is trying to destroy you. But listen, the gospel goes on to say that there is more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. The gospel goes on to say that Christ's grace is enough even for the unrepentant sinner to turn back, to come back. Does your heart break for those who are wandering? I love uh, this letter by Martin Luther. He wrote, wrote it to a friend who, was, who had fallen into sin, and this friend uh, was feeling the weight of guilt. And because of their sin, even though they turned from it and they repented, they were still dealing with guilt. Do you guys know what that feels like? And Luther wrote to this friend, and I want you, I want you to hear what he says. Luther said, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to say this. I know that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? No way. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where is he? There I shall be also. Oh, there is no guilt in the body. Your guilt has been removed by Jesus Christ. Guys, the, 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 the life of a Christian is not pretending that we don't sin. The life of a Christian is confessing our sin, knowing that we are freed from guilt. And what we're talking about here is just simply pursuing someone, saying, look, I want you to see that you're a sinner so you can know how good the grace of God is, so you can come back in to the grace of God, so you can know that there is no guilt in Jesus Christ. And then we gently pursue, whether it's one-on-one or a small group or it's a whole church. As somebody comes back, we embrace them into the grace of Christ. And we show them there is no guilt here. This is not a guilty place because we have been washed by the blood. Welcome home. That's what this is about. It's motivated not by shame or guilt. It's motivated by the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? We, we should pursue. We should pursue others who are wandering with love. Our hearts should break as we see somebody wandering from the grace. Listen, often we don't because we feel like we have a plank in our own eye. We say, I'm a sinner as well. Who am I to condemn? And then we are confronted by the gospel and we recognize, of course I'm a sinner. That's the point. And we just need to pursue and help others remember that they too are sinners. That's the point. Oh, the gospel leads us into this kind of pursuit. It frees us for this kind of pursuit. And we pursue then out of gentleness and out of grace and out of love, not out of anger or disdain or hatred or bitterness. Guys, have you known the love of Jesus Christ in this way? Do you know his grace? Do you know that there is no guilt under the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you ever turned to him and said, God, I need to be washed by you. 
I've got nothing on my own. I'm dying out here. All I have is Christ, God. Wash me and cleanse me. And have you experienced the freedom of the Christian life? But friends, turn to him now. Plead the blood now. Cling to the cross now. Gaze upon him and feel the burden come off your back and roll down the mountain into the grave. And there we stand face to face with Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd who pursued us. We have been bought with a price. We have been rescued. Let's rescue others. I'll just close pointing your attention to verse 15. There we see that Jesus says, um, pursue this individual approach And look at it. He says, if he or she, of course, listens to you, you have gained your brother or your sister. Is gaining your brother and sister worth it to you? Don't you realize that when we pursue in this way, we get friends? We gain friends. There are some people very close to me in my life, and I love them so much because they are the people that rebuke me. (laughs) They're the people that gently pursue me. They love me enough. Pursue one another and gain the family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word in Jesus Christ this morning. God, we ask that we would pursue one another in this with this kind of love not out of a mean spirit not out of some kind of legalistic fear of man pray that we would not disdain the sinner we pray that we would not ignore the sinner but that we would recognize that pursuit is indeed love help us god as a church to be faithful to this that we might gain one another that we might love one another that we might all enjoy the grace of Jesus Christ together. God, don't lose anybody in this room. It is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.